The preaching of God's Word is found in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6, and there at verse 13. Take up before us the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, though not the end of the Lord's Prayer, as we'll come to consider. And for the sake of some context, let us read from verse 9 through verse 15. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's there, verse 13, that petition recorded that we give our attention to. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer, as set before us, is a prayer that gives us guidance for the types of things that we should seek of our God. And what an assurance it then instills within us when we consider that we have warrant to seek such help from the Lord as is here presented to us. And as we've touched on each of these petitions so far, we see great encouragement as we look at the profanity of this world to realize that we're encouraged to ask God to sanctify His name. And likewise, as we see much rebellion at work in our own day, to ask that God would cause His kingdom to come. And likewise, as we've seen our own sins, to confess them and to ask His free forgiveness. Well, now we take up this petition, lead us not into temptation. Notice that word, lead. It is, of course, a word that is used of shepherds leading their flock. And we know, of course, the Scriptures regularly use that imagery that we are as sheep and God is as the shepherd. And so Psalm 23, we speak of the Lord our shepherd. The Lord God is our shepherd. Christ is called the good shepherd. And, of course, we are rightly instructed to seek His guidance, not our own. Notice the way the petition is asked. It's submitting, right? It's acknowledging you're the leader, we're not, right? We aren't the ones to direct ourselves. We're asking you to lead us. And notice as the petition goes, lead us not into temptation. It's not that we as a stubborn uh, creature would pull against God in this petition, but it's that we are conscious of our own weaknesses. We're conscious of the many enemies. We're conscious of uh, the horror of sin. And so it is we're asking if it would please Him that He would not cause us or lead us into such trials as would expose us to the, uh, the vehement hatred of that chief enemy and adversary, Satan, as well as the wickedness of the sin's delights. We can think of it this way. You know, there are things in our unconverted days, if we uh, were converted later in life, that we can look back on and find, as it were, repulsive. 
words spoken, actions done, things participated in. And when we think about those things today, we don't think back fondly. We think of profane language, we think of uh, all manner of different sins, and we look upon that with disgust. And though there was a day when perhaps we would have thought, this is where pleasure is, I want to be led there, I want to experience those things, now we find those things grating against our soul. Now we find those things uh, repugnant to our desires. There's something there in this petition. We're saying, Lord, it's not that I wish to be, as it were, resistant to your guidance, but I find those things uh, undesirable. And likewise, deliver us from evil. As we'll see, this word in the Greek has an article, the evil, and many have uh, seen in this uh, a testimony of the evil one. And that's certainly a possible interpretation. Many have taken it, and others have said, well, there are many times when abstract notions have an article preceding it, and so it doesn't have to be, and that's fair as well. Uh, The point here is not that we have to take a position because if it means the evil one, what does the evil one do? The evil one brings evil things into our lives, right? And if it's evil things, well, who is the one that is called, as Paul says, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and so on, the one who leads into all manner of wickedness? Well, it's Satan. And so you think of Job's life, and Job is going here and there and prospering, And then it's Satan, the adversary, who asks, as it were, permission. And when he gains permission, he brings all manner of evil upon Job's life. And so we don't have to feel the press of making a determination as to which it is, because in the end, whether it's the evil one or evil, abstract, it all comes out in the same way. The evil one leads, as it were, and brings trials and evil things upon us to elicit from us in his purpose rebellion, and evil things are, as it were, the operations of the evil one who would so work upon us unto sinning. And we ought to say from the outset, when we come across the biblical word temptation, we can find some difficulty. Lead us not into temptation. Of course, you'll be familiar with the book of James, and there in chapter 1, we have that very clear testimony from the Bible, when in verse 13, we read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Well, how can we reconcile these things? In truth, it's not hard to do. Because on the one hand, here as Christ is speaking and putting in our mouths, we're not saying God don't work within me lustful desires. God doesn't do that. But rather, we're asking, Lord, don't lead me into the circumstances of trial. It's my desire to evade those things. If it would be to your glory, I pray keep them from me. This is everywhere in the Scriptures acknowledged. So we see in Proverbs 30, verse 8, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why? Well, don't give me those things because they would try me, and within me is still some seed of sin that may indeed work upon those things and be led astray. What James is talking about is the inner consent and desire for forbidden things. That's why James says, God is not tempted. 
He cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt anyone. That is, God doesn't work within somebody to lead them onto sinful desires. And so, how does sin come to pass? There's a mystery, but James says, here, lust is at work in one's own soul. Every man is tempted. That is, they find this desire for sinful things when they're drawn away of his own lust, his own desire. So we don't need to spend too much time on that point, simply seeing that here in the petition, what we're asking God is in His mercies, He would not guide us into those circumstances that would prove trying to our souls. And yet, in the same breath, we say, deliver us from evil. If it is that you bring us in, as we saw in Exodus 5, as we see in the book of Job, as we've seen in the life of Christ, as we see in the apostles in early church, when trials come, what's our prayer? Not simply, well, I guess this is my lot, I'm just going to do it, but we petition, as the Psalms are full of, deliver me, bring me out of this. And so it's teaching us, both, as it were, on the outside of hardship, to say, Lord, if it would be to your glory, Please lead me not into hardship. But we're also praying and taught to pray if in hardship, we're still to look to God and wait upon Him that He might bring us out. Well, let's look at three things to help us better consider this petition and how we might employ it in our prayers. Firstly, our need. Secondly, our desire. And thirdly, our comfort. Our need, our desire, and our comfort. What is our need? Well, our need is the Lord's help, but why? Well, the reason is not so clearly stated here, though confirmed throughout the Scriptures. It consists in our great weakness. This is something we have to come face to face with, that you and I are intrinsically and essentially weak. So contrary to what the world says, And it's contrary to what, in many ways, our own inner thoughts may think. But think of this for a moment, children. You, with ease, grasp dust, and you toss it in the air wherever you want. And when you do that, you ought to reflect, that's what I am. I'm of the dust, and to the dust I'll return. God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And though man is dignified by the order that God has established within His being and the great privilege of being one who is the image-bearer of God. Yet remember that all of that is by God's doing and none of our own. No one here can say, I made myself. And no one here can say, I sustained myself. That even the most hard-working and diligent person in this world, the most Uh, uh, thoughtful and diligent in academics, the most uh, diligent in manual labor, all of these things being what they are, is the consequence of God giving and God sustaining. So that at the end of the day, every day, however long we've worked, however much we've accomplished, whatever we've done, at the end of decades of such labor, consistency, daily, self-denying, earnest work, we have to be able to say still, I am weak. And the whole of my life of whatever relative strength is perceived by myself or others is simply and solely because the Lord has given me this ability. 
But it's more than that. It's not just the nature and constitution of what we are as entirely dependent and contingent creatures. It's hard for us to remember this. You know, we look at mountains and we wonder at their grandeur. We think, and you know, there are mountains you can go to and you can see, um, you know, carvings in there by explorers. And you can see paintings by, you know, people that preceded Europeans that have come. And you realize these mountains have been here for a long time. And yet we have to remember those mountains are as contingent as we are. That if God withdrew, as it were, his support, the highest peak and the most astounding weight in this world would instantly vanish and no longer be. That's true of us. But we also have to look at our spiritual weakness. We actually read of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It is perhaps not a a constant uh, fault, but it is a common fault that we are tempted to think in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There are times as Christians where we begin to think, got it figured out, I've got things established, everything's now working in rhythm. And there may be truth to that. There are indeed ways that God blesses as we come under His guidance and we submit to His Word and we make the daily uh, routines prioritizing the means of grace in private and in public, and we're watchful over our thoughts and our words and our desires, we're purposed in our discussions with people, we're earnest in these things, we order our lives around the main thing. And the Lord blesses that. And that's good. And we rejoice in that. But within that can be a subtle temptation that comes. I've got it figured out. In fact, the psalmist on occasion says that he thought, he said to himself, I stand sure by your grace. And yet what happened? He's brought low. Here's the thing. The temptation that comes in when God's grace is active is a temptation to think and we start to lean upon our own work. And so we lean upon Bible reading. We lean upon prayer and public worship and reading of good books, listening to sermons, Christian fellowship. And we lean upon them in a way they're not meant to be leaned upon. Instead of, as we were using them by God's grace to look to God and to plead with Him and to receive through these means His provision, we start, as it were, to look to ourselves and we say, wow, I've got it figured out. And we start to think, now I stand. And yet here Paul says, the one who thinks he stands is to take heed, take warning, take consideration, lest he fall. You say, well, what does this look like in clear and simple ways? Well, a very familiar instance is recorded several times in the Scriptures. Look at Matthew chapter 26, and you'll see this and register in your mind quite clearly the point. Verse 31, Jesus says unto them, All ye shall be offended, that is, you will stumble because of me this night. For it's written, I will smite the shepherd, the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Notice Peter, verse 33. He answered and said unto them, Though all men shall be offended because of thee. What's Peter saying? Though all men shall stumble because of you, though all men should trip up because of you, 
yet will I never be offended. Christ says again, particularly to him, this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter ups his statement, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. It's not just Peter, but notice, likewise also said all his disciples. What is Peter exhibiting? He's thinking that he stands. Now, as we survey it, we could say, well, he has decent reason to think it, doesn't he? He was an intimate apostle. He was doubtlessly moved by what he's witnessed as he enjoyed the Passover with Christ, as the wonder of the first administration, the Lord's Supper, was there before him and all the promises. And Peter was the one by God's grace. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven, bringing from Peter the confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou hast the words of life. Where else shall we go? He's often first in professing these things and earnest and zealous for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what happens? So soon as he's relying upon himself, And though he is in the midst of pursuing Christ, he gets tripped up and stumbles into such ways of sin that the only one who outdid him was the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. Think of that for a moment. Simon Peter is only outdone by Judas in his betrayal. He stands and says, I don't know him. He says again, you're mistaken, I'm not one of his. And finally he says with curses, God condemn me if I'm lying. I am not a disciple of Christ's. Cock crows, he hears it, he's pierced through. And we're told in one of the Gospels that Christ passes and Christ meets eyes with Peter. And he's pierced through. Why? He's just fallen. He thought he was going to stand. He thought he was going to be okay. He thought he had reason to think as much. But he thus came face to face with his spiritual weakness. What's the point? Christians learn that about themselves. I don't have strength in myself. And if God leads me and as it were exposes me to myself and by myself, I'm undone. And so there is the desire that God would protect and promote us in the way of grace. This does nothing to deny that we can do all things, notice the language of Paul, through Christ that strengtheneth me. That's the right order. Peter was looking to himself, and there is a subtle and hard to discern difference between the two. There is this subtle temptation that we start to lean a little bit over unto ourselves. I can do it. I've good read. God has been faithful. All these things I'll be able to overcome. But rather, when the Christian has learned by painful experience that often he rests upon a reed that will pierce through his own flesh, what happens but that he learns to prostrate himself before the Lord and ask, lead me not, lest I sin against you. And yet, as we'll see, when he does lead, that he would deliver. So our great weakness, but also our need consists in this. It's not only that we're inherently and intrinsically weak, 
in ourselves, but we have overwhelming enemies. Enemies that are far mightier than we are. You think of the name Satan. Children, you should note this. The name Satan means something. Just like Christ means something. It's not a name, but it's a title. Christ is the Messiah. And so the anointed one, the name Satan means adversary. It's a simple meaning of this name. And so when you see the name Satan, what you're reading is a name that says adversary. Just like we look at Jesus. And every time we come across his name, blessed be God, we can rejoice. He's so named for he shall save his people from their sins. And yet every time we come across in the Bible, Satan, we're seeing one who is rightly named the adversary. One makes this point that from the earliest history that we know of Satan, he was an adversary against God, right? That's his preeminent hatred toward God. And yet when he's cast out, he brings with him a number of angels falling with him because he's an adversary against God. And we see him portrayed again and again against God and his kingdom. And here's the point. You wear a mark. No, we tremble to think what would happen if we were marked out by some nefarious and wicked institution and had a bounty placed upon our head. Here's the truth, Christian. It's already true for you. Satan has you marked and despises you. Satan is happy to see you think that all is well. And yet, unbeknownst to you, is seeking your downfall. You say, well, that's pretty difficult and hard and you know, heavy. Well, it's the truth of what Christ tells us. It's likewise what the Bible asserts. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Peter writes, and oh, think of this. Peter, who knew by experience, is now exhorting the church, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, how interesting, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. This is the reality. You know, there have been occasions when we hear reports of some caged animal in a petting zoo or illegally held escapes. And there's notice on the news, you know, this kind of creature is out. There were in recent months south of where we are, the testimony, if I'm not mistaken, of a tiger that had escaped or some big cat. And you can imagine if there were news that came to us, you know, in some zoo, a creature has escaped. The tiger is out. They haven't found him yet, but they're in this area. Every household that's aware of that would bring their children inside. Why? Because they know what tigers do. And so it is for us with reference to Satan. He is as a roaring lion. He is a strong and able adversary and seeks to devour. Sometimes you hear foolish people say, well, you know, we just sort of say things against Satan and Satan's just this little petty thing. He's not little and petty to you. He's little and petty to God. That's an important understanding. The Scriptures ever portray Satan as enormous against us, but infinitely small against God. That's why Peter goes on to say, whom resist steadfast in what? Faith. Looking to God, not to ourselves, 
looking to God. Our great enemy is greater than we are, and thus we have need for the Lord to protect, to guide, to lead us. The world is an enemy. John mentions this in 1 John, and oh, how we see it on almost seemingly full display in our own day. When in 1 John in chapter 2, speaking of that sinful system, John says in verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. It's recounted in multiple places. Augustine relates of one who in days of gladiator uh, uh, warfare uh, said, you know, I despise this brutal uh, pageantry and brutality of men killing men and with screaming people. And Augustine relates of one who was forced against his will to go and he said to his friends, you know, I'll go, I detest this but I will be so resolute and keep my eyes closed and I'll fix my mind against ever delighting in these things. And his friends were impressed by such resolution and they gave him a great seed and to test him and try him. But what happens? Well, the shout of the crowd happens at a fatal blow that was struck against the adversary and he couldn't help but open his eyes. And what's recorded from that moment on is that this man who went boasting of his strength to resist these horrible sights, became one of the foremost advocates of going because he was overwhelmed with the bloodthirstiness of seeing this display of the outworking of brutality. Here's the point. We have to realize the lust of the flesh, the eyes, the boastful pride of life, if we are left to it, will overwhelm and consume us to the very things that we presently look upon with disgust. You take Peter and you think for a moment, you gather him to the side and you say, Peter, you've just said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where shall we go? You have the words of life. What are we going to do? Do you think that there's ever going to be a time when you would find it more appealing to you to deny Christ, knowing Christ, blaspheming Christ? You know, Surely Peter would have said, I can't imagine such a day. And yet so soon as he walks forth in his own confidence and left to himself, he's exposed. And as it were, the sinful remnants are reawakened unto the grip of sin. Great enemies, Satan, the world, our own indwelling sin. Here is then our need that the Lord might lead us in other paths than hardship, and trial. Notice then secondly our desire. What is it? Christ says that as prayer is of course the pouring out of our hearts unto the Lord, our desires lifting them up to the Lord, that one thing that we are desiring is to avoid temptation. Lead us not. All things being equal, my desire is that you wouldn't lead me into the arena where I'm going to be tested. There is a certain arrogance in some who are early converted in their walk with the Lord. They're stirred by the accounts of martyrs. And they sort of get this lust for being made a martyr. And yet, quickly discover that the martyr's death is a death of great grace and no self-reliance. The experienced and mature one 
is the one who says, I'd rather not go. You hear this in stories of historical warfare, and doubtlessly today, young men have a war come up. There's a draft, perhaps. There's rumors of it, and they're saying, I'm going to go. I want to see all this. I want to get involved. I want to participate. And then the first bullet's fired, zings past their ear. It obliterates their neighbor. They see death and destruction around them. They see the ravenous breakdown of society and war, and now they say, All of that romanticism is absolutely false. War is brutal. And if at all we can avoid it, it would be better to avoid it. Well, it's similar for the Christian. The Christian sees and experiences and realizes it would be better to avoid temptation. God, if you would have it so. We mentioned this earlier, but notice in Proverbs in chapter 30, and there at verse 8, Proverbs chapter 30, and at verse 8, we have this petition, as it were, from Agur, who says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Notice verse 9, why these petitions? lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. There are young people who are converted out of drunkenness and then they realize, well, you know, alcohol is okay. And so they say, well, I can go to the same bars and the same pubs and participate in the same things. I'll just moderate my drinking. Well, they're right on one side. Alcohol is not a problem in and of itself. It's created of the Lord. It's meant for uh, good things. And yet there's a presumption. And they go to these same scenes not realizing that they're actually with you know, foolhardiness rushing into the scenery of temptation. And it's a world of difference to be brought into it by God's providence versus you know, uh, individually and voluntarily rushing into it. The believer, mature believer, says, if it would be your pleasure, keep me from those extremes of trial that would either puff me up or would, as it were, push me down. Because I know enough of myself and I desire to avoid the temptation. But likewise, not only to avoid temptation, but when in the Lord's good pleasure it is His appointed purpose to bring us into trial that He would rescue us from the danger. You can see this illustrated in the Apostle Paul when he cries out to God, 2 Corinthians. You know, a thorn was given to him to buffet his flesh and so on. And he cries out to the Lord three times, Lord, you know, uh, deliver me from this. Remove this from me. Take this away from me. What's he saying? He's saying, take this trial from me. Take this from me. He's asking for rescue. And the answer is not the deliverance from the trial, but rather, and this is important, deliverance in the trial, which is a divine rescue. What's the response that Paul receives three times? My grace is sufficient for thee. The thorn isn't removed. The trial remains. So the Lord had purpose for it. And it was to humble him. Paul actually says, you know, I had these visions. I saw great things, things that I'm not even 
able nor permitted to speak of, which, by the way, instantly uh, uh, throws out all of those 30 minutes, 60 seconds, two hours in heaven or hell. All of that is a sham. The Apostle Paul saw the glories of heaven, and he says, things I could not and was not permitted to share. Right? Well, he was given these great privileges, and the Lord then appointed for him to suffer great afflictions. And so he cried out, just like we're taught to cry out, deliver me from this, remove this thorn from my side, help me, O God, that's my desire. And yet he's taught a lesson, and we're taught a lesson with him. That the rescue is not always the rescue from the trial, but rather within the trial to find and discover the grace of God which is sufficient for us. Well, the petition says, deliver us from evil. Again, this could intend the wicked one or the evil one who's mentioned in 1 John 2 verse 14 and elsewhere. And it could, of course, refer to more generally the corruption of the world, the evil of this present age, 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. Either way, it washes out the same. What we're saying is, Lord, I desire to be rescued from him and from his ways. What does that mean? It helps us to realize a few things. Certainly, it's right for us to ask, Lord, deliver me from this trial. Paul wasn't reproved for that. God didn't say, wait, time out. This is my purpose. What are you doing? You know, he's rather given comfort where he's to focus his attention. Focus your attention on my grace. Other times, God's people cry out, deliver me from this trial. What happens? The trial's removed. We see that recorded in historical books of the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. And we see it throughout history, that there are seasons where trial comes, God's people cry out, God removes that from that. But both of them are an answer to this petition. Because what's happening is God, even when He doesn't remove the circumstances of trial, but sustains them in grace, He's delivering them from joining in commission of sin and thus succumbing to the evil one and the evil things around them. And so the Lord has His sovereign way. He may look upon the petition and He says, that's it, I'm done. I'm I'm moving the situation. It's over. He may say, no, I've got a purpose for this. And yet in the purpose, I'll deliver you from evil by sustaining you by my grace. Both of those are causes for us to rejoice because our preeminent concern is that we would be kept from sin. Our preeminent desire is that we would not shame the name of Christ. And what a blessing it is to know that even when He allows the trial to continue, the pain to continue, that He also provides us, as Paul says, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he warns us about taking heed lest we thinking we stand should fall. Notice he also goes on to mention that there's no temptation, verse 13, taken you, but such as is common to man. That's something to remember, isn't it? Because typically we love to think that we're such peculiar people. You know, my circumstances are unlike anyone else's circumstance. We're told that from a little kid, and there's truth to it. You know, so we're told, well, no fingerprints the same. There's truth to that. Just like no snowflakes the same. There's truth to that. 
But we shouldn't then reason and say, well, my troubles are troubles that no one else has faced, and woe is me, because no one knows what I've gone through. We open the Bible and say, that's just a flat-out deception. First off, Christ has faced far worse trials than any of us. And he sits upon a throne of grace to help us. Second, we have a cloud of witnesses in the book of Hebrews, some of whom were sawn asunder, some of whom witnessed the death of their husband, the death of their wife, the death of their children for the cause of Christ. And then we have likewise this statement, there's no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer, not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Notice the way of escape is not the way of evasion, but the way of bearing it. That's an answer to prayer. He gives us grace to bear it. What are we escaping? We're not escaping the fact of temptation. We're escaping the sinful compliance in the temptation. That's what's being escaped. What's being said is not that, well, when we pray, God will definitely remove this from us, but rather when we rely upon Him, though the temptation remains, the circumstances abound and even increase, He's going to supply us grace that we would not commit that most detestable of sins and for a moment's relief, capitulate and sin against God. That's the hope. That's the encouragement. And that's our desire. My ultimate desire, O God, is that I sin not against you. Well, thirdly, what's our comfort? Well, it's embedded in the fact that this is a petition. Notice we're asking, lead us not, deliver us from evil. Well, to whom are we raising this petition? Our Father, which art in heaven. Some of you will have followed the news of the past week to some extent, and you've heard this tragic story of the submersible that went into the water to go and search out the Titanic, and in three hours or so it imploded, it seems, and all survivors, of course, have died. There was most likely instantaneous death. You can think, though, one of the theories for a while was that perhaps they've just lost radio contact. Maybe they're stuck at the depth by the Titanic and they're hung up and they can't get out. They got five days of oxygen. We saw this. We heard this. We know what the news was. Well, let's play that out for a moment and think what a hopeless situation it would be to be roughly a mile underwater in total darkness in a submersible where you can literally touch the wall while your back is against the other, other people panicking, banging on the walls perhaps, all these things that you could imagine, oxygen levels starting to be depleted, and you're crying out and you're starting to realize, you know what, there's no hope. Zero hope. The fact of the matter is there's no hope. Now that's not what happened in what took place with this week, but you can entertain the thought of that the overwhelming agony of coming face to face with, this is the end, and there's no hope. Darkness, death, and all of the agonizing inner thoughts within the mind. Brethren, the Christian in the darkest of trials is not like that. 
because though no other man hear us, though we could bang on the walls of our life and no one so much as turns their glance to us, yet we petition not flesh and blood, but lift our voices and more importantly, our deepest longings to whom? Our loving God, our Father, the one who loves us, who cares for us. Some of those stories are most bone-chilling. There was a father and a son. The son didn't want to go on this adventure-seeking thrill because he was afraid. The Lord, or the father, brought him along and both died in the implosion of that submersible. Submersible. But think of this for a moment. There are times when our Heavenly Father leads us into places we don't want to go. It's painful, it's difficult, and we're saying, I'd rather not. But unlike that situation and all of its tragedy, we have every reason to trust that our Father in Heaven is wiser than we and has good for us in store and is faithful that has called us to enter into dark places so that we can sing. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Not because, well, it's just going to work out. Well, this is, you know, things that... No, because you're with me. Our Father is with us. And likewise, He hears us. Our God in heaven is our loving God. And this is important to remember that this is a prayer of disciples, those who have uh, taken hold of God in Christ. It's that comfort. I call upon my Father who has loved me and reconciled me to Himself by the blood of Christ. And so our comfort is, whatever the trials, how heavy they are, however long enduring they may be, my Father in heaven loves me. This is my comfort. But there's more. How blessed it is to see that our Father is in heaven speaks of the highest authority, the strongest position, and the greatest ability. Our comfort consists in this truth. And brethren, do we not have a long-standing record of His loving compassion toward His people? This is what stirs our hearts. We read the Old Testament stories of deliverance. So we read of Daniel cast into a lion's den. And what does God do? He sends an angel, shuts the lion's mouths, and Daniel survives. And he wakes, you know, the king greets him and he comes out of the den. And you know, all of the hatred, the king throws his four or his three friends into the fiery furnace. And there they are in the midst of the furnace with one likened to the Son of God. We read of Esther, and we're astounded at all of the details that are there recorded. And you think of Mordecai and his prayers and the praying of the Jews and of Esther and her prayers and the praying of her women. And all of these circumstances stacked against, as it were, the whole of the Jews, mind you. And what happens? God, our Father in heaven, orchestrates it so that the king can't sleep. It's a sleepless night. Noah was praying for that. Noah was saying, would you make the king not sleep and then read the record and what's going to happen to Mordecai? But the Lord hears the prayers and brings forth tremendous blessing so that in a moment, the whole story shifts and so it is that Haman, who had plotted the death and destruction of the Jews and had built a gallows for Mordecai, is now himself hanged in the gallows. You know what's interesting? What is Haman? 
He's an adversary of the Jews, God's people. What's he doing? He's plotting their downfall, their destruction, their overwhelming uh, uh, obliteration. What happens? God changes the whole storyline, preserves his people, and overthrows the adversary. Now, that's a historical fact, but it's also a prophetic testimony of what will happen. On the last day, all of God's people, think of this statement, will see God crush Satan beneath our feet. That day's coming. And this is our comfort that whatever befalls us in this life, even as you know, Mordecai said to Esther, don't think that you're going to escape if you're silent, for deliverance will come from another arm as God will bless. There are seasons when God gives us over to destruction. For thy sake, we're killed all the day long. But we are confident in this, that our loving and our almighty God in heaven is working all things together for the good of those that love Him, who are the called according to His purpose. And whether in this life or in the life to come, we will see the full and final deliverance from all evil. Our prayer in this life and forever will not be in vain. Brethren, as we close then, let us measure well the enemy's strength as well as our own meager efforts and ability to overthrow him. We ought to consider well our past failures. But in all of this, we ought to consider our Father, by the way, who has never lost so much as one second of the battle. He's ever victorious, everything going perfectly according to His plan for the ultimate good of His people. You see this again and again uh, testified, Exodus, all these things coming out, and yet God is doing it all ultimately to bring out a mighty deliverance. You look at the cross, the preeminent example, there's Satan breathing out all of this vitriol, the enemies of Christ rejoicing, and yet, though with wicked hands he was slain, yet God had ordained it to the provision of salvation to his people. And so you will see one day, if only in heaven, how dare we say, if only in heaven, surely in heaven, someday you will see that even your trials have been purposed of God both for your good and the advance of His praise. So brethren, lose not heart, but remember your Father's love and power. In this life, call upon Him, trusting His goodness and His sincere love for you and His ability both to preserve you and to deliver you from all evil. Would you stand with me for prayer?